Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Today, Chris Hipkins says no to Winston and New Zealand first, but who is really dividing the country? Why is Auckland Council considering Maori seats at this time? And why are we paying to keep a school with just two students operating? Now, before yesterday, we pretty much took it as read the way the political parties would coalesce after the election, but at least we have it confirmed now after what Chris Hipkins said yesterday about Labour's relationship with New Zealand First. So now it's National and ACT and possibly New Zealand First on one team and Labour, the Greens and the Māori Party on the other. Except, of course, if National and ACT are so dominant they can govern alone and don't want New Zealand First. But I wonder if the Prime Minister has any sense of self-awareness after his comment yesterday. To quote Chris Hipkins, National Act and New Zealand First are focused on dividing New Zealand. Ah, hello, this is Kettle calling pot. Which party, for instance, has legislated for water services entities where mana whenua have a say disproportional to their population in the distribution and costing of nature's most important substance? Which party has passed a massive 1,300-page behemoth of laws called the Natural and Built Environments Act, whereby all planning decisions, even for private property, have to be run by a national Maori entity? Which party has taken away the rights of voters and local authorities to say if they wish to have a ward just for voters on the Maori electoral roll? Which party arranged for the Minister of Maori Development to commission a response to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples instead of the then Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters? Which party then withheld the subsequent report, Hey Pua Pua, from the electorate and its then coalition partner in the build-up to the 2020 election, even though the report was in the hands of Labour Party ministers almost a year before the election? The answer to all of the above questions, every one of which contain initiatives designed to divide this country along Māori and non-Māori lines, is of course the Labour Party. And Chris Hipkins has the cheek to say that National Act and New Zealand First want to divide New Zealand. I mean, police. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. In the midst of the general election campaign, you would think that matters pertaining to local body elections would not be high priority for the population at large. As a voter in a local authority, I'm certainly not thinking of local elections, and probably neither are you. And that lack of interest and attention is probably the rationale behind a quite extraordinary exercise by Auckland Council at the moment called Deciding Whether to Introduce Māori Seats for 2025. Now, one might have thought this was quite an important issue for the voters of Auckland, but the council opens submissions on the subject a few days ago, closes them on September the 24th, and then will make a decision in October, as in the month after next. 
It looks like the council will not even hold any sort of poll, as happened in Western Bay of Plenty recently, where 78% of those polled said no to the idea, but the council went ahead and did it anyway. It's pretty obvious that Auckland Council has predetermined the outcome here because the consultation document makes little mention of the body that already exists to represent Māori interests in Auckland, namely the Independent Māori Statutory Board. The IMSB has appointed members sitting on Auckland Council committees with full voting rights. The question is whether or not Māori seats on the Auckland Council after 2025 would be in addition to the IMSB or replaces them. The ambiguity of the consultation document suggests it is in addition to what is already there. What's more, one of the options suggested for, quote, ensuring mana whenua representation at Auckland Council, is through appointing unelected members to sit around the council table with full voting rights, as happens currently at the Canterbury Regional Council. So are Aucklanders, of whom just 11% identify as Māori, going to have unelected members of their governing body as well as extra unelected members of council committees? See the problem here? This must be what Willie Jackson and Tamati Coffee calls the tweaking of democracy. The very woke local government New Zealand, of whom Auckland Council withdrew as a member back in March of this year, has issued what they called the Guide to LGNZ Standing Orders. The top priority, according to LGNZ, is that all local authorities have obligations under the Treaty of Waitangi and should acknowledge the mandate of mana whanua as the traditional governors and that they should enable the participation of Māori as citizens. Now, the big problem with that stance is that local government is not the Crown and therefore, like every other non-Crown entity, have no obligations at all under the treaty. But Auckland Council, or rather its bureaucracy, has decided to ignore that reality and push ahead anyway to create a governing body for New Zealand's largest conurbation, which will have some deeply undemocratic elements. Aucklanders can submit against the proposal. I doubt they will be listened to. The worrying thing for the rest of us is that where Auckland goes, the country goes. Maybe the best hope the plan will be rejected comes in the votes made by Auckland Council to withdraw from local government New Zealand back in March of this year. It was a split vote around the council table 10-10 until the Mayor Wayne Brown decided he would save his ratepayers $350,000 in LGNZ fees. On past form, he's unlikely to support a move to Māori seats on the council, especially places that will not be voted for. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. From our correspondence file inbox at realitycheck.radio, Bev Reynolds writes, I would like to inform your listeners of two public talks being given by Bob McCoskery on the concerning issues around gender ideology in the school curriculum Yes, Bob is making a visit to the Queenstown and uh, Southern Lakes area. So tomorrow, Tuesday, the 29th of August, 7 o'clock at the Presbyterian Church, 84 Tenby Street in Wanaka. Bob McCoskery will be speaking. And then again, he's doing it on Wednesday night in Queenstown at St. Margaret's Church Hall, Ross Street in Frankton, out by 
Queenstown Airport. So Bob McCoskery from Family First in the Queenstown and Southern Lakes area this week, tomorrow night, Tuesday the 29th in Wanaka at the Presbyterian Church and at St Margaret's Church Hall in Frankton near Queenstown Airport on Wednesday night, the 30th of August. On other matters that you have corresponded about, uh, this text which has no name on it. Peter, read the text about the medical staff going back. I doubt many even want to go back after that disgusting treatment. I have only briefly considered the idea of going back into the education system and then only out of desperation, but still I have decided against it. I am disappointed and saddened by the lack of support and understanding from long-standing colleagues and feel absolutely betrayed by the employers taking commands from our treasonous government. Understandable. Thank you for that. Another text that has no name on it, Step Peter, there is a huge lack of trust in all our systems, and of course the possible it's possible the integrity of our voting system would be questioned and mistrusted. That's an interesting text. I know John Parker talked about this during our interview in the middle of last week, but really, in New Zealand history, there has never been any problem with the integrity of our voting system. Maybe I'm being naive, maybe I am being too trusting, but I certainly have no issues whatsoever with the way that voting in this country is conducted, mainly because it is conducted through a paper-based system where you tick the voting forms, we don't do it electronically, and therefore I think it is a much safer way of uh, voting. And, of course, every party has scrutineers in every voting booth. So I don't have any issues with the integrity and the uh, the operation of our voting system. Uh, but thank you for that. Uh, talking of the voting system, Steve, this is in response to some comments made by Sandra Gowdy and also by John Parker here on RCR in recent times. Uh, Steve says quite vociferously, votes are not reallocated. Read the Act. Well, I know that they're not officially reallocated, Steve, but let's just reiterate once again what happens to those votes for parties that do not make the 5% threshold or do not win an electorate seat. Uh, the votes are not officially reallocated, but that's the effective outcome of them. So let's talk about the 2020 election. Remember that Labour got 50.5% of the popular vote. They got 50.5% of 100%. But on the night, and after all the special votes were counted, 7.9% of the vote went to parties that either didn't win an electorate seat or didn't get to a 5% threshold. So effectively, Labour finished up with 50.5% of 92.1% of the popular vote. That meant that of the votes that counted, Labour had 54.8% of the popular vote. That's how they finished up with 65 seats and why people say that Labour finished up with an extra five seats because of the so-called wasted vote. They were reallocated five extra seats because of the uh, the wasted vote. And National finished up with three more. Well, that's the effective outcome that they are reallocated. But in actual fact, those votes are wasted. They are not counted. And it just means that the proportion of a party that does get 5% or does win an electorate seat just increases. So back in... 2020, as I say, Labour went from 50.5% of 100% to 54.85% of the votes which mattered. So that's how 
MMP works. That's how MMP has always worked. It is not an official reallocation of the wasted vote, but it is an effective reallocation of that vote. I hope that clears a few things up. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. I like to think I know a little bit about small country schools because, you see, my father was a teacher and I spent the first eight years of my life living in the houses attached to two country schools, one in rural South Canterbury, one near Invercargill. That was, of course, over 60 years ago. And soon after we moved on, both schools, called Arundel and Kennington, closed their doors and the remaining students went off to school in the nearest town. And why did those schools close? Well, it was simple, really. There weren't enough kids left to make the schools practical propositions. So in the days before schools became autonomous entities, each with their own board of trustees, the respective provincial education boards made the decision to close the schools. Now, I raise this subject because of a front-page story in Saturday's Otago Daily Times. Tyree Beat, a small settlement 36 kilometres south of Dunedin, has its own school. It was once famous, or should that be infamous, because Robin Bain, he of the murdered Bain family, was once upon a time the principal there. That was over 30 years ago, and the school was reported then as having 33 students. Now, though, it has two. That's right, two. One more than one. And the school is still open. What's more, the current principal, Dr Gloria Penrys, says the tiny role is not a problem because she has been working on, quote, an extremely innovative, never-been-done-before, nature-based learning programme, unquote. The report doesn't expand on that. Dr Penrys, who, to be honest, sounds somewhat overqualified to be principal of a two-student school, says she knows the reasons why the role has declined so much in recent years, but she won't say why apart from many parents in the area working in Dunedin, so they take their children to school somewhere in town. Um, I'm sorry, that just does not add up. My experience is that parents usually like to send their kids to school locally for the convenience more than anything. But the report in the paper raises a couple of other significant issues too. It says the school has, quote, five very experienced and capable staff. Um, Five staff? For two kids? How many of them are teachers? Well, there is at least one more teacher, Lisa Omani, because she's in a photo with the school's only students. Uh, By the way, they're reported as being siblings, but they have different surnames, and the chair of the Board of Trustees, described as a parent to them, has yet another surname. It seems that uh, family relationships at Tyree Beach are a touch complicated. But then get this, the Ministry of Education Director of Education for Otago and Southland, Julie Anderson, is reported as saying there is no threshold that automatically requires a school to consider closure. Uh, But isn't it about time some common sense was applied here? The Ministry of Education should be checking the population in the village to see what the prospects are for the school's growth. If they're not good, then surely it makes sense to just close the school down. This is almost as ridiculous as the situation in Tuturumuri, uh, the school in Wairarapa, which was still officially open with no students, but had staff being paid until some sanity prevailed, 
and the school was finally closed in 2019. Now, in the days of old, when there were provincial education boards, Tyree Mouth, sorry, Tyree Beach, would have closed. Tyree Beach is very close to Tyree Mouth. Tyree Beach would have closed some time ago. Keeping it going with five staff for two students is just a nonsense, absolute nonsense. The Ministry of Education has plenty to answer for in this country, and this is just another embarrassment. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, the B, a couple of weeks out from the start of the Rugby World Cup. Ian Foster, or the coach of England, Steve Borthwick, or Eddie Jones as the Wallabies mentor. Uh, the reality is that all three will be feeling uh, more than a tad uncomfortable after the weekend's matches. I don't think Andy Farrell as the Irish boss will be feeling great either after his team, which is ranked number one in the world, just scraped by Samoa by four points. And then Jamie Joseph, coach of Japan, must wonder where his side is after they were whipped by Italy. Uh, That's a lot of international rugby coaches and their players feeling pressure with the game's biggest showpiece not far from starting. Okay, if you're running South Africa or France, then things will be a lot more relaxed. But is that form going to stay solid for the next two months? But maybe it's the game's administrators at World Rugby who should be the most concerned. Yes, the Springboks just absolutely slammed the All Blacks and displayed some flashes of brilliance in doing so, not to mention their immense power in the Fords. But the game was dominated by the referee and the television match officials so much that a 40-minute first half took an hour to play. New Zealand Rugby's referees manager Chris Pollock made his feelings well known in a Facebook post. He says the intervention of the referee and the TMO have been way over the top, he wrote. Now, as a senior employee of a constituent member of World Rugby, he might have to answer a few questions from his bosses. But he spoke the absolute truth. Rugby cannot afford to have constant interventions from the TMO through that rugby league idea, the bunker of TV replay screens. As Pollock said, rugby should be 99% refereed on the paddock. But as the bunker will be there at the World Cup, the chances of that happening, I reckon, are low. What this past weekend has shown is this. There have never been more teams in with a realistic chance of winning the game's biggest prize and the potential for nitpicking interference from men watching TV has never been higher. Some correspondence now, which has arrived via inbox at realitycheck.radio or through text at 2057. Wayne says, Peter, could you please find some of Tony Child's music? Tony is touring New Zealand in November with The Cause. She may be open to a talk on RCR. Thank you, Wayne. I have uh, passed the request on to our music man and chief programmer, Paul Brennan. He will no doubt be in touch with the promoter. I didn't know Tony Childs was the support act for the cause. I knew that the uh, the cause, the, the Irish sisters, were here for a couple of shows. I think it's at Spark Arena in November. But Tony Childs, by the looks of things, is going to be first on stage on those nights. Uh, More from Steve, what Winston says and what is the truth are usually not the same thing. Winston will go with whoever gives him a seat at the Cabinet, even Labour in this election. I don't know, Steve. I think he's been burnt by this current Labour Party, the current leadership of the Labour Party, so he will not be going back there anytime soon. For once, 
I trust him on that. It's just a question of whether or not the National Party and the ACT Party can work alongside him. Mind you, Winston's got to get to 5%. Winston and New Zealand First have got to get to 5% in the first place. Uh, This is from Martin. He says some very nice things. All RCR presenters deserve a medal, as this is a battle for national and individual sovereignty. Go well, all of you. Message in a Bottle, a song that I presume refers to the Jim Croce number that we must have played at some stage uh, last week. It brought back some tears, as you really are sending out an SOS. I fondly remembered the innocent music from my childhood, but was most upset for the wasted four decades serving in the military and the realisation three years ago that I was unwittingly doing the bidding of the globalist multinational corporates and shill political traitors. Peace, freedom and love. That's from Martin. Thank you for that. Uh, In response to our interview with uh, Matt Hoy, formerly of UB40, uh, last Friday, This text says, I'm a huge UB40 fan. Sadly, Astro died in November of 2021 after a short illness, unquote. Wasn't he jabbed? Hmm, says the texter. Uh, Well, he may well have been, uh, but we cannot comment any more on that because there is no official cause of death apart from the illness that he suffered. And then finally, uh, an electoral, this is from an anonymous texter, An electoral person phoned a dementia home wanting to organise voting, asked how they would expect them to have informed consent. Uh, This was by the dementia home staff. Uh, The person from the, I presume, electoral uh, commission couldn't answer the question but still organised a time to come in. This is not right. Most people in dementia homes have EPOAs, or the Enduring Power of Attorney, in place for health and welfare. Uh, this is serious. That's a really good question. I don't know what the story is as far in, as, far as uh, voting is concerned in elections for those with dementia. I'm pretty sure that Enduring Power of Attorney uh, does not extend to voting in elections. If anybody can give me some information on that, I would be uh, really keen to know it. Uh, My address is inbox at realitycheck.radio or you can text 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. If you give birth to or father a child, you have three responsibilities in life to clothe, house, and feed that child. Yes, it costs money to raise a child, but you know, of those costs, giving them a homemade lunch to take to school is not one of the most expensive. A loaf of bread is $4. 500 grams of butter is $5.50. A punnet of honey is $7. A jar of Vegemite is $6. A packet of chocolate biscuits for a sweet treat is $2.50. A bag of apples is $4. So the components for a week's worth of school lunches, possibly for even longer, 
comes to $21.50. At most, $4.50 a day per child. Is a child not worth $4.50? Is $4.50 a day really too much to provide some food for your child at lunchtime at school? Because I don't think it is, even in these times of difficulty with the cost of living. Yet nearly three years ago, the government started a lunch program in schools and they've just reached a milestone. 100 million lunches have now been handed out. The headline is that it is a free lunch program. Of course it's not free, it's paid for by your taxes. What's more, the cost per meal is estimated at $8.28, which frankly, when you consider the bulk buying opportunities available to a scheme such as this, seems quite exorbitant. But it's pretty obvious not all the lunches are eaten at school either. The principal at Pine Hill Primary School in Dunedin told the local paper on Saturday that, quote, there's been quite a good uptake of children taking the unused food home to their whanau. So, you and me, taxpayers, are now funding a program where there is so much leftover food, the kids can take it home for the rest of the family. Is there no end to this welfare state? Yes, life is expensive in New Zealand. Interest rates, rent and power costs are challenging. But there are ways, with a modicum of effort and time, where feeding your children can still be achieved in a not-too-expensive way. Witness the prices quoted above from the Countdown website. And by the way, what happens when the kids are on school holidays for 12 weeks a year? When this Food in Schools program was first introduced in 2019, I remember asking back then if it was the job of the state to parent children, just like is it the job of the state to provide period products for female high school and university students? Where is personal responsibility? But then... That's what socialists do, don't they? They want as many people as possible dependent on them. That's how they think they'll get voted back. But it's a pathetic way to run a country. And that's why the socialists need to go on October the 14th. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Well, we made a trip into Wanaka yesterday from our place in the country, which in itself is not unusual. But it's the first time I've been to town uh, since the election hoarding season has begun. And as you drive down the hill past Mount Iron on your way into Wanaka and past the golf course, the hoardings have been put up on the grass verge on the left-hand side, or rather they had been put up only to be knocked down and smashed. Now, Wanaka is a mostly blue town in the mostly blue electorate of Waitaki, although Labour actually beat National in the party vote uh, in 2020 by 44% to 31% uh, in this electorate. That was a rarity, though, and National's Jackie Dean won the electorate race by 3,200 votes. She's retiring, and National's new man, Miles Anderson, is expected to win the seat easily this time around. But his position at number 59 on the party list uh, suggests he's not that highly regarded by the party leadership at this time anyway. However, the approach to Wanaka is a graveyard for election hoardings. Which had survived and one for Democracy NZ, for goodness sake, and another for a guy I guess you'd call him a hobby independent candidate. He stands in every local body election and every central government election going. 
But the one sign that the Labour candidate, Ethan Ryle, the 18-year-old, had put up was maybe the most wrecked of them all. Across the other side of town, on the Mount Aspiring Road, it was the same. The ACT Party may have survived on one side of Wanaka, uh, but not on the other. So what is it? Why are these hoardings being wrecked? Is it just wanton damage? Maybe some bored kid out to wreck some property? Or is it something more sinister, like maybe a campaign to deflect attention from the larger parties in the forlorn hope that a minor party man like the Democracy NZ candidate could get up? Or is it that whoever is responsible for the damage is just dissatisfied with the options on offer for October the 14th and wants us to forget what and who we could vote for. I doubt that advertising hoardings actually get anybody to change their vote, but they probably help with some name recognition in electorates where the local MP is pretty low profile anyway. It is not the end of the world, but it just seems to be part and parcel of election season nowadays. It used to be defacing the signs, now it's just wrecking them. But let's keep the physical assaults to the signs, eh? And nothing more, please. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show for a Monday. Thank you for your company. I look forward to talking with you again on Wednesday afternoon. My address for correspondence, inbox at realitycheck.radio. You can text me at 2057. You've been listening to Pete Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.